Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Key West, Florida, uh, trying to flex the remote work muscles here towards the end of the year, but the show must go on, and I am absolutely thrilled to welcome one of our uh, longest standing friends in the advancement community, Bill Kissick, who is the Chief Advancement Officer at Mercersburg Academy. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Brent. Good to be here. So Bill and I met within, you know, uh, a couple of months of founding Evertrue. We got connected through the extremely tight-knit independent school community. At the time, Bill was at St. Paul's School, where he spent uh, over uh, 10 years. And it's fun to host Bill in that he has worked uh, in both a higher ed context uh, he's worked in a boarding school context. We haven't had a lot of boarding school fundraising professionals on the show, and I think it's going to uh, hopefully illuminate a really um, special part of the advancement community um, for our listeners who might not be that familiar with it. Before we get into all of that, though, Bill, um, as you might know from some of our previous episodes, we love just better understanding uh, the higher ed experience and the journey of our guests. And uh, and, and as much as you and I have spent time over the years, I don't know that much about um, what ultimately inspired you to go from William Penn Charter School to, uh, to Denison. And so why don't you take me back to junior year of high school at William Penn Charter School? Who was that guy? What was he into? And uh, what, what led you down that path? Well, that's interesting, Brent, because junior year of high school, my father took a sabbatical. My dad was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. <clears throat> so he uprooted the family from Philadelphia and moved us to London. So my junior year in high school, I was at the American School in London. Um, and all of the college prep work I did was out of like a Barron's, I think it was Barron's college book. So I was convinced from that that American University in DC was a great school. I knew nothing about it except what was in that book. So um, it, was a, it was a fabulous year. I didn't wanna leave Philadelphia. I had a great thing going at Penn Charter um, and then didn't wanna come back from London because it was just such a great year being over there. Um, I mean, that's, that's a tough age to just uproot and, and get uh, planted somewhere else, you know, especially somewhere uh, you know, culturally so unique. I mean, what, what stands out? Uh, first of all, tell me about the American school. And then second, uh, just what were some of your favorite memories from that year? Why didn't you want to come home? Well, it's as an athlete, Brent, I think you'll get this. I was a, the goalie on the soccer team at Penn Charter. And uh, moving to London, I was up against two senior goaltenders. and I didn't, didn't stand a chance. So I had to learn to play the field. And then coming back, one of my best friends had quit football to move over to soccer to be the goalie the year I was away. I didn't want to take his position, so I ended up staying playing, you know, um, uh, defensive back. But um, London was just, that was, it was 74, 75. It was letter bombs going off. So there were nights coming home where your route home was disrupted because a bomb had gone off in a mailbox and they shut down the streets. Uh, the American School in London at that point in time was very much an oil and gas driven school. Um, and we had two or three bomb scares when I was there. We'd have to evacuate the whole school and, you know, go out onto the streets and stuff. Um, and a lot of people were, I still remember just, one of my- Just to be clear, Bill, nothing that you've said so far explains to me why you didn't want to leave. Just, just, I'm, I'm waiting for that part of the story, but- that sounds kind of crazy, to be honest, uh, you know, to be dropped into that. But I'm sure uh, some lessons along with it. It was a crazy time, um, but it was also, you know, the, the whole London experience. You know, I was very into musical theater and being able to go see shows pretty cheaply on a regular basis was nice. Made some amazing friends who had moved sort of all over the world. Um, a lot of our people were, you know, they worked for Gone Everywhere, GE, or I've Been Moved, IBM. And, you know, they'd lived in Paris for a couple of years. They'd lived in London for a couple of years. They were sort of transient, if you will, executive children. And it, and it was a co-ed school, which Penn Charter at that time was all boys. And that was pretty advantageous. So, 
and then ultimately you spent one year and did go back and graduate from Penn Charter. Yeah, I came back, graduated from Penn Charter. Um, from there, went to Denison in Granville, Ohio. Um, that's actually where I started my development career. I was a student fundraising volunteer my sophomore year. And quite honestly, Brent, I was not intent on doing it. A fraternity brother of mine was running the program. And he, of course, signed us all up. And the night that I was scheduled to volunteer, there was a snowstorm. So he came by my room and offered me a ride. And I was like, I guess I'm not getting out of this. But I ended up enjoying it, uh, ended up running that program my junior and senior year. And then after and I so what what did that entail running the program your, your junior and senior year, Bill? Oh, it was we were we had 15 phones a night, Monday to Thursday, calling from eight to ten. And it was my job to recruit the, the other students to be the volunteers, to be the cheerleader, to be giving them, you know, their next batch of assignments, training them and doing, you know, we did all kinds of crazy stuff to, you know, rally the troops and things. You know, just imagine the kind of stuff you do when you're in college age. And so, and it was a but, lot of fun. Uh, but, but you couldn't even pay them. I mean, that's like, uh, that sounds like a pretty professional volunteer operation. So we had, we had beer and pizza and we let each kid make one phone call on their own during the night. So, and it was during Denison at that time had a J term. So, you know, it was about a third of the kids on campus. And quite honestly, a lot of the kids who came in used their free phone call to call a boyfriend or a girlfriend who weren't on campus during that month. So but that's, we that's great... talk about perks and benefits. <laughs> Whatever you can uh, do in the door. So you had a very early, I mean, we talk about the, the student calling programs as basically being the gateway drug to advancement leadership. Uh, it's amazing how many of our guests started and, and got exposed because, you know, candidly without that, it's very possible to go through your all four years of college and not even know that philanthropy is a, is a thing, much less understand how it works. Um, at what point did you think about it as a, as a viable career path? And I'm actually not sure what you did immediately out of college. So that's interesting. I actually thought that I wanted to be in advertising. And I can still remember when I graduated, the, the, the drill was your resume had a job description right below your name or a, a, a dream job. And mine was something to the effect of, I want to advance, sell, or promote a product, service, or cause in which I believe. And I'm convinced that the in which I believe is what kept me out of advertising because, you know, their job is to sell whatever it is they're selling. And personally, both my parents were first in their family to go to college. You know, that gave them a better life, gave me and my siblings a better life. And in turn has given you know my children a better life. So for me, serving education is a great way to to recognize the impact it's had on my life, and then to sort of pay it forward, if you will, <clears throat> to the faculty and students and staff who benefit from what we've put together going forward. I love so it. I, yeah, it sounds it backwards. Sounds like you did, uh, and you still are working in advertising in a certain regard. It just happens to be something you you really believe in, and so. Um, if you didn't go down the advertising path, what did you do right out of school? So actually my first year out of school, I bounced around on a couple of jobs because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. The year after that, the person I reported to at Denison left the advancement field to go into banking. And he reached out to me and said, you know, I know you don't have your dream job yet. Why don't you come here and do this? And so my attitude was I'd go there for a couple of years leave, get my MBA, and then get my job in advertising. And, you know, I did get an MBA, but, you know, 40 years later, I'm still in this industry and happy that I didn't go into advertising. So. So tell me about the MBA experience. You got your MBA at Wharton. Um, pretty, pretty rare within the advancement leadership uh, realm to, uh, you know, to, to pursue MBAs um, and, and, and not too many at Wharton specifically. What stands out from your time there? Uh, and then ultimately, how did that shape your your post MBA path? So, two funny stories about that. One, I like to say that I went to the best school I could afford, 
because my father was professor at Penn. And when he started at Penn, it was a benefit that your children went to any Penn degree program for free. So I didn't have to pay any tuition. The third position I had, so my career was, I did two years at Denison, then two and a half years at Penn Charter. And then I went to St. Lawrence in upstate New York as a gift officer. So that was my first frontline gift officer job. And a lot of the, the prospects I was working with were alums, young alums on Wall Street. And I just didn't understand what they were doing. And it made me feel inadequate not to be able to, to speak their language, to know sort of what they were doing. So, you know, that was part of my reason for going to business school was to better understand, you know, money. But also, you know, my, my major was in strategic planning. So I think that helps, you know, I loved the statistics that I got and just a better sense of the world that many of the people that I work with play in. That's a, uh, that's a pretty big investment to build empathy with your, uh, with your prospects, but it sounds like uh, it was really worthwhile, but even being in the MBA program and getting exposed to all those different verticals and, and possible career paths, um, you maintained your commitment to the mission-driven sector that you uh, have made your professional home. Yeah, I, I would joke that I think I was the only student that did not set foot in the career planning office. So what, what did you do instead? And, and where did it lead right out of school? So it was all networking. Um, I can't remember exactly how many offers I had, but Coming out of school, the job that I took was as a major gift officer at Dartmouth College, focusing on their western part of the country. So basically draw a line north and south at, the, at Denver. I had everything west of that. Um, another offer I had was director of major gifts at Bucknell, uh, director of major gifts at Occidental. And then I think I had the uh, director of development at the web schools in Southern California but um, chose to go the Ivy route, which I really enjoyed. I learned a lot by being in that crowd. Um, to this day, some of my best professional friends are peers of mine that were the, the major gift person for New York City, Will Davison, the major gift person for New England, Colleen Bartlett. You know, that was, those were great times and, you know, saw some very significant successes and, you know, that really sort of put my career on a different trajectory. I'm not going to date you, Bill, uh, <laughs> too much, but you started your career uh, without an email address, without a cell phone, without, uh, you know, probably barely even a computer. Did you have a computer at the, at, at the first role at Dartmouth? <laughs> No, uh, I did at Dartmouth. So, but funny story about that. I remember being in business school, working on a paper in the computer lab. And one of the kids next to me said, can you imagine writing papers before PCs? And I looked at him and I said, when I was in college, my rich roommate had a selectric typewriter that had the pop out eraser thing. And that was high tech. And the guy looked at me Magical. like, how are you? <laughs> Magical. And, uh, and so, for those, uh, you know, we have a lot of newer professionals or, or, you know, younger professionals in the sector who listen to the show. Uh, how did you do the work without any of the things we have at our disposal today, Bill? What, what did you actually do west of Denver uh, and how did you do it early on? So you'll get a kick out of this, Brent. When I used to go to California, I would take three or four of the... Um, now I'm drawing a blank on the name of the map, but they were these big spiral bound maps that you would use to find your way around. <clears throat> and I would FedEx them home when I left LA as I was going up to San Francisco. In San Francisco, the Thomas Guide, that's what they were called. In San Francisco, you needed two, one for the valley and one for the city. And, you know, I mean, no phone, you know, just do it you know everything was done in a very different way and you know getting appointments was you'd send somebody a letter wait a week call them you know end up talking to an assistant try to get through that person to get an appointment and and go from there 
So I look at, at what we have today and it's just, you know, the ability to, to do everything you can do on your little computer in your pocket just makes this world so much easier. In spite of having so little technology at your disposal, when you think about some of the early visits in your career that really stand out, or if there were moments when you really felt like you, um, you were getting the hang of the work, I mean, are there any early conversations or early wins, if you will, early closed gifts that you still think about as being maybe um, pretty pivotal in, 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 in your career path? There were two that both happened at Dartmouth. And one, I remember my first visit, it was a, a venture capitalist at Sequoia Capital. And he had made a $35,000 gift for his 35th reunion. And this was 1991. Um, Dartmouth had been, you know, their mas mascot had been the Indians. They had moved beyond that to the big green, but he was wearing his Indian tie, which was a relic. And he said something to the effect of, you're not in my will and you're not getting a major gift. What do you want to talk about? And I had a very thorough strategic plan that John Strobain, who was the provost that Dartmouth had led, it was probably a 70 or 80 page book. And I had that with me and I just started walking him through that. And I think as a venture capitalist, he was intrigued by the business way of us looking at the education we were providing at Dartmouth, how we might change it and why. And that led to, you know, I was lucky at that point in my career, I had the provost would travel with me, the dean of faculty would travel with me, head of athletics would, people loved going to California. And every time I went there, I was able to take somebody else to see this individual. And he actually ended up endowing the Native American program, which imagine going from wearing your Indian tie to, and it was all because of an experience, well, for a lot of reasons, but one was that his son had had a transformational experience on a reservation during a summer. And so he wanted to sort of, that was his way of paying it forward, if you will. So the second, the second sort of significant gift that I was a part of at Dartmouth was an individual who had not, he'd only made one gift to the college and it was his father who was also an alum had solicited him to help with a project that was of interest to the father. And this was an individual who I was just convinced cared deeply about the college and wanted to do something significant, but hadn't found that opportunity, if you will. And we actually had a, a renovation of a building that allowed it to be renamed. And it was something that I went to him with. And in three months, he agreed to do the entire commitment. And, um, you know, that was also a sort of career arc changing sort of gift. So. And when you think about the, the first example, and maybe there are others in your career where basically they take the visit, but they lead with, there's nothing happening here. Like, this is not like, you're not in my will and I'm not making a major gift. I would imagine those conversations happen every single day in the advancement sector. And I would also imagine that most of the time people politely leave and disqualify that prospect and move on to the next person in the portfolio or in the qualification pool. How do you think about the persistence and kind of perseverance required while at the same time balancing that with the expression, you know, don't throw good money after bad, right? Don't go chasing and wasting your limited time and plane ticket resources on somebody that uh, isn't going to ever come around. I mean, that's got to be a, a real game of psychology um, where you have to make those, those, those decisions um, every day. And, yeah. and how do you guide your team when they hear, you're not my will. You're not a, you know, you're not my, uh, you're not getting a major gift. You know, how, how do you know when to, when to keep pressing? Yeah. Well, that's, I'm a big fan of the Gladwell 10,000 hour rule. And I think a lot of this, you just acquire over time. And what I try to work with anybody on one of my teams, I say, you know, no is not always no. It may be not now. It may be not that project. It may be not that amount. And the, the skill you get is when you can realize that no doesn't mean no. It means one of those other 
challenges. And then you think about the decision tree, you can think about, okay, you know, that's not the right project, but they're interested. So what other projects might I put forward? Or it's not the right time, they're going through some family challenge, you know, I just need to wait that out, or it's not that right amount. You know, I still remember one case when I was at Deerfield, <clears throat> we'd asked a current parent for a significant senior class gift. And the family came in and they were talking to me. And it was clear to me that we had just asked for too much. And so I'm thinking, how do I sort of let them down gently? <clears throat> they were asking about how I came up with a number. And I said, well, we do a little bit of research and then we just double it. And the relief on their face was significant because I gave them a way to, to do something significant for them, but less than what we'd asked for because we had in fact asked for too much in my mind. So, and that's just part of the human nature of what we do is sometimes you ask for too little or for too much. And how do you with grace and dignity allow that person to do something that's, that feels right for them? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the most fascinating areas of, of this field that I think is unlike just about any other sector, which is, you know, when you think about pricing strategy, right? Like there's all these MBA classes on pricing strategy and, you know, how much should a Tesla cost, right? Or how much should a cup of coffee cost? And what is the, you know, marginal increase in price due to demand? And you can run all kinds of tests. Um, you can't do that when you're talking about a hundred thousand dollar, a five hundred thousand dollar, a million dollar gift. Yeah. Um, you and and um, and ultimately, you know, philanthropy is the ultimate discretionary purchase, if you will. Uh, and so, I am curious if you have other experiences where, um, and you know, our, our friend Jim Zimmerman has probably shared, and I need to get him on the podcast, but he has shared one of the all-time greatest over asking stories where he really asked for too much money, uh, where, where it was just, uh, you know, totally out of the realm. Um, have you ever had that happen? And then on the other hand, have you ever under asked where somebody was almost disappointed in how little you asked for? Yes, yes to all of those. And one, you know, one lesson I learned early on is that <clears throat> just because one approach works for one person doesn't mean it's gonna work for another. And so again, I had this young entrepreneur in LA who at the time I thought I was asking for him to be the youngest person to put his name on a building at an Ivy League institution. And, and it worked, it, he did it and he's, he's been generous to Dartmouth many, many times since then. Um, I got a little out over my skis and tried that same approach with an oil and gas guy in his, you know, class of 50s. And I remember following up with the assistant to get the follow-up call. And I think her exact words were something like, he won't let you tell him what to do with his money. Goodbye. And I was like, okay, lesson learned. I burned that bridge. And, you know, luckily since then, somebody else came on, took that job and was able to rebuild that bridge. But, you know, there are times when you do make those mistakes and, you know, you're, you're as gracious as you can and, you know, try to mend it. But um, that's, that's a risk sometimes you take that, you know, I won't do that again. I learned that lesson, but. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's a balance because if you don't, if you don't uh, challenge people, um, you know, it, it, it mitigates the amount of impact and, and hopefully you can keep that in mind, you know, as, as folks listening, make those stretch asks, you know, you're doing it with really good intentions, um, but it doesn't mean mistakes don't happen. How about on the other hand, have you ever under asked? Oh, I'm sure I've under asked more times than I know about, um, you know, and to your, your point that you were, how do you know, is it just when, when, when the yes is too quick, uh, yeah, sorry to yeah. interrupt, but I want to know, how, how do you know? Yeah. Yeah. I still remember early on in my career, visited with a fellow and, you know, he, he wrote a check on the spot and it was, you know, if he can do that, you know, I didn't ask for the right amount. Um, and I have something written up on my whiteboard that part of our business is to enable people to move from success to significance. So, you know, you can have a great career and be very successful, but, you know, through philanthropy, you can make yourself significant. 
And that's what I like to think about is how do we give people the opportunity to, to make a difference in the world? I love it, Bill. Tell me about the decision to move from really successful, you know, almost, I mean, let's call it elite higher education advancement experiences. What was your catalyst to explore the boarding school world? And just tell me about that journey. Well, it's, it's, it's a personal one for me because I, I, I learned early on in my career, there's, I like to say, I'm allergic to bureaucracy. And, you know, I don't know how big the Dartmouth, they're wonderful up there, but it's hundreds of people. I did um, a capital campaign presentation last week for Case, and I was on with somebody from the University of Texas. He had more gift officers working for him than we have entire staff at Mercersburg. And I just, you know, when I want to know how my gift officers are doing, I look out the door, there are two of them. One's not here today, one is. I know he's traveling. You know, I don't know how Juan keeps track of, you know, I think he said 140, you know, gift officers. So for me, it's a scope thing and it's an impact thing. I can see, you know, I, I know who, I know the people here in a way that, you know, that's hard, that for me at least, it was hard to know working in a bigger shop where you may not even be on campus. One of the unique um, nuances of the boarding school world, you know, relative to the broader independent school, you know, day school community, for example, is truly how international those programs are. Uh, and I know that you've, uh, you've shared in the past just some incredible stories about, you know, certainly in a pre-pandemic context, the the world of international boarding school fundraising and, and the seasonal cycles and running into some of your, your colleagues uh, from the Northeast, you know, at the same hotels in the same cities at the same times. Um, very few members of uh, the advancement community, much less our audience, will ever get a window um, into that world. So maybe just, just walk us through and, and maybe even some of your first um, you know, Asian fundraising experiences in the boarding school community and, and just what was, what was that like? Well, it's, it is, you know, I, I would joke with, you know, I usually travel with my head of school or my head of admissions and, you know, our families would roll out the red carpet for us. And my line to, to my colleagues was, I'm just a kid from Philly, you know, it's, I'm only here because of the school I represent. And it is, it is, it's a different experience when you're one, these families are sending their children halfway around the world and the amount of trust they're putting in you to take care of their children. You know, if you're a family from New York City and you know something goes wrong and your kids at St. Paul's, you can be there in two or three hours. You know, if you're in Hong Kong, you can't get to you know the States for two or three days, maybe. And so there's a whole level of trust that I just found incredibly um, generous in terms of, of how those families would, you know, would think about us taking care of their kids, which is, you know, in many cases, you know, their most precious gift to the world. Um, that said, the development world over there is, is incredible. Um, I would joke, you know, I would see you know, I was at admissions events where you'd see people get up midway through and it's hey, like, hey, okay, Bill. hey, Bill, Bill, give me one second. Um, I'm going to uh, I'm just going to dial back in because this is really good and I'm having a hard time hearing you. I'm just going to I'm going to come in via um, my phone really quick. I'll dial right back. Yeah, just what you know, I'll, I'll just kind of tee up again. Um, most of our listeners will never get a window into the. Uh, boarding school fundraising experience and especially how international it can be. Um, and you've shared in the past just some of the amazing experiences in Asia, um, you know, and, and I just love to kind of get your perspective and maybe even on some of those early journeys uh, over there, just kind of what, what stood out um, as you were representing your, your schools um, in, that, in that market. Well, the thing that stands out the most is the, the sort of love and admiration that the families have for the schools, especially when you think about sending your child halfway around the world, having a sense that they're going to be safe and secure and well taken care of, 
is a critical component to what we do. And they're sort of thanks for us just doing our jobs, if you will, was just always very humbling. Um, and, and, and you've always said, you know, getting a meeting was not nearly the challenge, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the prospecting into a, a parent that is making such a big investment uh, into the community relative to, you know, an alum that's been disconnected, it's, it's pretty different. It's very different. And, you know, I rarely would have to leave the hotel. They would say, no, we'll come to you. You know, it's not, you know, come to my office the way it would be, you know, with people here in America who, you know, who are in an office today, which is a different thing. But, you know, they would, they would come to you and, and everybody would take your call. They'd be honored to meet, you know, you and, you know, you're just there as a representative of your school. It's not as though, you know, you're some, you know, rock star, but you really were treated like royalty, if you will. And, and it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. You know, the, the travel is exciting. Um, I happen to like the food. You know, there are some people who say you need an iron stomach over there. For me, that was just part of the joy of it all. And just their real sense of, you know, how these institutions, especially boarding schools at that age, are really setting their children or if they're an alum, setting them up for life. And, you know, that really is, you know, education is a huge sort of success factor in Asia. And they're just complete joy in having their child at your school. And, you know, they would, they would talk about it as their school. One of the things you shared in the past, Bill, is just how tight-knit the independent school um, fundraising community is, the advancement community. I know many of the uh, you know, folks that were leading, uh, some of your competitor schools uh, became close friends and that you all uh, were really, and, and still are collaborative and, uh, and willing to share with one another. Just tell me a little bit about um, what it was like to operate in that kind of uh, segment uh, of the broader case advancement community? Well, that's, you know, going back to your, you know, pricing, you know, we're not selling widgets and we do compete with each other in terms of wanting to enroll the best and brightest kids. But at the end of the day, we're a collaborative group that shares information. And I've been blessed in my career to have some wonderful colleagues, mentors, friends, you know, who I can reach out to whenever I'm up against a challenge that I'm not sure how to handle. I mean, I still remember a time in the last campaign I ran where we'd hit a bit of a, of a, a drag, you know, we weren't really making progress. And I called one of my colleagues and said, you know, we've hit a wall, I'm not sure what to do. And she said, it happens to everybody, sort of welcome to the club. You know, there's a time in a campaign where you go sideways for what could be, you know, two or three quarters. And that's just part of, of running a campaign. So don't let it tear you down, you know, just keep on. And I remember another time where I was trying to, we had a building project with a deadline we were trying to solve. And I reached out to another colleague and said, have you ever done this? And he said, we had that exact same issue four years ago with our building and here's what we did. And that to your technology thing, I just took it from, you know, he said we used a fax machine, so instead of that, we used an email, but we did a very similar approach, and it ended up being successful. Um, and that's one of my bits of advice to anybody sort of coming up in this business is build your peer network. You know, there are many cases where you can get better advice from a peer than you will a consultant, and it doesn't cost you anything. And, you know, I just, you know, I could rattle off, I don't know how many names of people in this business that, you know, I really trust their advice. There are people that I talk to on a regular basis and, you know, their colleagues and I would say friends. And, you know, that's, that's my go-to well, group. Rattle off a few names because that's how we get our next guest for the Raise podcast. Who comes to mind? Well, I mean, some of the best in the business, you know, Colleen Bartlett, who's now at the Crossroads Academy in LA, she and I started at Dartmouth together back in 1990. Will Davison, who's retired, but doing consulting, was also at Dartmouth then. Um, you know, I could, you know, rattle, well, who, let me see, who else? Um, Mary Kate Barnes at Lawrenceville, um, Dan Corsi at Choate, 
Yeah, I think it's important for the audience who, who again, is not as uh, probably common or familiar with the independent and boarding school community to understand just truly how tight knit it is. Um, and it, and it's, I think, uh, you know, maybe with that bill, like if there are folks listening who hadn't thought about the independent school world or the boarding school world, what is the pitch for them to maybe consider that as they think about future, uh, you know, steps in their career? Uh, you know, are you hiring at Mercersburg? I mean, why might somebody consider um, moving out of the, uh, you know, elite or large public higher education fundraising uh, world to a, a smaller, more tight-knit community? Well, I will start by saying, and I believe this is an accurate quote, that Bruce McClintock, who is now retired from Marts and Lundy, used to say that the best advancement people that he knows are in boarding schools. And so, you know, I do think it's a tight-knit group. It's a wonderfully supportive group. Um, you know, it's different than a big university. You know, it's a boarding school, especially for the faculty. They live here. They teach here. They raise their families here. It's a, you know, I used to joke with my head of school at St. Paul's that he was the mayor. You know, he had to be everything to everybody. So it's very different than a you know, what I would call a nine to five job at a bigger institution where you go home to your community. Here, your community tends to be your school. And you get to see you're closer to your impact, which to me is what this is all about. And it's being able to get to know more of the faculty on a first name basis, getting to know kids on a first name basis, and being a part of something that really is, is special and, and changes the trajectory of kids' lives. You know, it's, I went to a K-12 day school you know, it's a great experience, but it's not as, I don't know, all-encompassing, if you will, as a boarding school. You know, these the kids who come here, you know, the faculty are their family. You know, I still remember my older daughter who went, did go to St. Paul said that the woman who ran her dorm was like her second mother. And I don't know of many, at least for me personally, I didn't have that experience at a day school where I felt that one of my faculty members was like my second mom or my second dad. So, and we are hiring. That's really well, really well said, Bill. Um, and I'll, I'll let you speak to hiring before we wrap here in a few minutes. But I also just have to ask, given the global nature of the community, you know, the, the trips to Asia that you've described um, in, in the past, um, juxtaposed with the pandemic, you know, I imagine this has been a particularly, you know, unique and, and, and radical shift in how you've done your job um, as a leader uh, in, in, in your community. Um, and I know that you're hungry to be able to get back out on the road uh, and maybe you've be, been able to in a limited extent at this point, but you know, when's your next trip to Asia? I mean, is the old way of, of, of that kind of uh, work ever coming back or do you feel like it's been changed forever? Well, that's, that's the $64,000 question, Brent. I hope it comes back. Um, I had budgeted for two trips to Asia this year. I obviously, well, I did not go in the fall, and I don't think I'm going to go in the spring. I may be able to pull off a summer trip. Uh, we are starting to do events again and some regional travel. This is a case where I personally think that, you know, my lack of ability to, to live in a more digital world makes it harder for me to do my work. I mean, I'm a guy who, you know, I'm used to spending 90 days a year on the road. And, you know, I've been, you know, here for the past year and a half. Again, we started to do some small travel. I wonder if we're going to shift from a world of large scale, what I call all in events to more targeted, smaller events, just given the COVID world we live in. I mean, just, you know, what was it? Cornell just shut down yesterday. Um, we had a breakthrough case here last week. We were supposed to have our kids go home tomorrow. We let them go home over the weekend. We're down to probably less than a quarter of our students on campus. I just think that COVID is not going away and we're gonna have to figure out how to do our work in a different world. Yeah, and I wonder, look, I, I think that um, ultimately, I am sure throughout your career, You've had some incredibly meaningful trips, some of which you've shared today, but I bet there have been a lot of busts as well, you know, trips that just went nowhere fast, 
um, that, you know, that took a lot of time. And I wonder if we don't land in an area where instead of, you know, you being on the road 90 days a year, you know, maybe the, the 80, 20 rule applies and, and you're on the road 20 days a year, but it ends up being highly qualified, extremely meaningful, high impact travel. And maybe some of the other marginal travel and visits do shift to digital and and maybe that's okay. Maybe that's better for the school, better for the budget, fine with the donors who are comfortable operating that way while at the same time reserving the in-person experiences for the more, you know, transformational or, or, um, you know, conversations that would require it to, to get to the yes. Well, that's, you know, we are a relational, at least in my view, we're a relational business. And so how do we create real relationships in a world where that's not done in a traditional face-to-face way? And I do, you know, this is my third year here at Mercersburg. I do think I would be better at doing my job at St. Paul's where I was for 13 years because I already had those relationships. And we're here, it's how do you create them in a virtual way? And how do you do them with some audiences that just aren't comfortable in a virtual fashion? You know, I have some of our more generous, you know, alums who happen to be my age or older who just aren't willing to engage in a virtual way. And so how do we, how do, we do that successfully? And that's a lot of what I spend time talking with my peers about is, you know, we've, we've all lamented not being able to go to Asia to build those relationships with our new families. So how do we do that in a virtual fashion, which we've all tried different things with some success, but that to me is going to be the, the, the challenge we all face going forward is COVID's not going away. We've got to figure out a different way to create these relationships and I think it is going to be different for people of different age groups and their comfort level with that. Yeah, way of business I, I hear you. At the, at the same time, I would argue that over the last 18 months, a lot of those um, people who might not have been comfortable building relationships virtually had to FaceTime their kids and they learned how to do Zooms with their college classes or with their friend groups or with, uh, you know, business deals. And so, we, we have been given somewhat of a gift in the, you know, digital acceleration that we've experienced. And the question then is how do we harness it for this, you know, for this philanthropic world? I, I think back to the example you gave at Dartmouth where, you know, the AD used to go with you or the provost used to go with you. I know it was not easy for you to get the AD's time or the provost's time or, or a faculty member's time and scheduling around their ability to get to the West Coast was not easy. So how do we start thinking about, you know, or continue to think about in a world where our entire community is a Zoom link away, how do we start accelerating the number of touch points ahead of school or a coach or a faculty member or a first generation student can have with, um, with, with alumni, parents and friends, even if it means they're not able to get on the plane with you and sit down with the person. And so do we make up some, some, um, lack of uh, just in-person relationship building, can we make up for that with a higher volume of still highly authentic and very personalized conversations, even if it's not as fun via Zoom, if you can have the head of school talk to 10 people a week via Zoom versus going on a trip a couple times a year, is there a way to net out ahead? I believe there is. I think that a lot of, at least in my mind, a lot of schools are struggling with that transition. And, you know, you've been a great sort of role model in thinking about, you know, what do, what do you call the the digital engagement officers or what are the people who are sort yeah, of... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the donor experience officer program is one that, yep. that's growing really quickly. And ultimately, that's just, you know, forever... Advancement has been an outside sales business. You know, you've been doing outside field sales for a mission. And if you weren't doing outside sales, you were doing direct marketing via the annual fund. And in between, in the middle of the pyramid, we think there's a huge opportunity for mission-driven inside sales. And we believe that before the pandemic, 
but the pandemic has obviously accelerated. Uh, it's forced people to embrace that model. And then the question is, how do you do it? What's the right technology? What's the right data? Um, but, but I believe very strongly that um, reaching people one-to-one, -one, truly one-to-one -one, in a world where we've all been added to a million you know, marketing campaign lists and automated email lists is going to be more important than ever. Uh, and it's not as good as getting out and seeing someone in person, but it's a heck of a lot more efficient. And we know that for a growing uh, portion of the donor community, they don't need you to get on a plane and go see them. And frankly, they don't want you spending 2000 bucks to get on a plane and get a hotel and go see somebody. Yeah. And for the people who do need that, hopefully we can get back to it. Uh, but also, you know, reorient um, the mix of our of our travel. No, there I think the best sort of comparable business, and it's a business, so you need them, but is banking. You know, and I look at it from the sort of the transactional part of banking, which is I have an ATM card. I never want to go into a bank and see a person, but that enables me to do what I need to do. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is I'm a high net worth individual. I want a personal banker that I know who's helping me make investment decisions, taxes, whatever. And, you know, and that, that's the spectrum that we work in in advancement. We go from annual giving, which is at the lower end, a sort of a transactional commitment to, you know, principal gifts, which is, you know, I know you, you know me, you know, and, and so I'd love to know more about how sort of the high net worth bankers are doing their business in a digital world. But the difference is you don't need philanthropy, you need a bank. And so it's not, a direct, not a direct comparison, but in some ways I think that they're very similar what we're trying to do at the higher end of the, the donor experience. Well, here's what I'm going to do, Bill. I'm going to try to track down a high net worth money manager uh, and get them on the show because I think that's a great example. They've lived through a shift as well. But yeah. I think it's the middle part of that spectrum that you just described, ATM, transactional on the, on the low end, high yeah. net worth private banker uh, on the other end. What about the middle? You know, who are the yeah. loan officers? Yeah. Right? Who are the people where, you know what, I don't need to go sit down with my loan officer but I do need to be able to talk to my loan officer. I need to be able to email with my loan officer. I need a one-on-one -on -one relationship, but I don't need them to fly out and see me necessarily. And I think that equivalent role where there's yep. a true one-to-one -one relationship manager that is still higher touch than a transactional ATM and lower touch than a high net worth money manager, that yep. has been a missing link in the advancement org chart that we think has to be filled. I, I totally agree. And I do think that's a case where the larger, more bureaucratic institutions have the, the human capital to make that work in a way that a lot of independent schools don't. I mean, again, I'm a total staff of 18, you know, and I, I don't have a, a, a FTE that could be full-time dedicated to that middle market. And that's, that's a challenge for, at least in my view, that schools I've worked at have to wrestle with. Yeah, I mean, it would it would require a leap of faith right now that might feel um, uncomfortable, but that's a fun conversation that's evolving, and hopefully, as we get more data, as more of these programs mature, we'll be able to help provide that data so that you actually might be able to run some numbers and realize, hey, actually, if we took one of the eighteen and we allocated them to the you know seven hundred and fifty people in the middle of the giving pyramid that need more than an ATM machine and less than me visiting them. Maybe there is an ROI there, and, and, yeah. and hopefully we'll be able to share that kind of information very soon. Um, Bill, we've got to wrap. Uh, thank you so much. I think this is going to be a, a very good um, window into uh, the boarding school uh, world and the independent school world for many of our listeners. Um, make the pitch for Mercersburg. I mean, what is Mercersburg? Are you hiring? Uh, and why should, uh, why should our audience have Mercersburg on their radar? Well, we are hiring, and I think we're a school right now that we have the resources to take some calculated risks. We are thinking about moving from, well, we've already left the sort of AP world. We're not teaching to the test anymore, and we're moving more in the meaning and mastery way of teaching. We are part of the Mastery Transcript Consortium, 
I do think that schools are moving away from, you know, again, I go back to when I was in school, no one had a computer. Now everybody's got one in their pocket. You know, information and data is easy to get. It's no longer teaching people facts and figures. It's teaching them how to think and what to think about. And I'll give you one example. We had a kid two years ago, maybe three years ago, who was part of an independent project, decided that he wanted to turn on a light bulb with his brain. And no teacher would have given him that assignment. That's just way too audacious to give to a kid. He came up with the idea and he did it. Um, he actually turned down Google to go to college instead. Um, I think if you think about giving kids a project that's meaningful to them that they can master, and it's sort of athletics is a great example. And I think if we just can teach that way, we will move away from, you know, education 10, 15, 20 years ago to education that's leading to 10, 15, 20 years into the future. So that's what we're all about here. We're a small school. Um, I think we just got a lot going for us right now. Phenomenal leadership. I love it, Bill. So well said. So if, uh, look, if you're listening and you're not excited about turning light bulbs on with your brain, it's not the place for you, but that's pretty, uh, pretty amazing. I love that example, Bill. Uh, and thank you for sharing your time today, sharing your perspective with our audience and for being a good friend uh, to me over the last 10 years and excited to continue to learn from you uh, and, and hopefully provide you, you some perspective as well. So uh, if people want to stay in touch, Bill, what's the best way to get in touch with you? I know you're on LinkedIn. Uh, what else? LinkedIn or just, you know, email kissickb at mercersburg.com, you know, so, and again, thank you, Brent. You know what you, I love what you, your business has done. You know, you've pushed the envelope in a bunch of different ways that has made a lot of us older guys think about how we do our work. So keep it up. Thank you, Bill. I really, really appreciate that. All right, race community. Hope you enjoyed the show with Bill. And with that, Brent signing off from Key West with Bill Kissick, who's the Chief Advancement Officer at Mercersburg Academy. Thanks again, Bill. Take care. Thanks, Brent.